Grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. If you, like me, were forced to read John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men in eighth grade, that's the quote that he named his novel after. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Point being, lay your plans, plan out your future, make, uh, make your plans, but something probably will happen that messes it all up. In other words, Murphy's Law is in full effect. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And this is the story of my New Year's resolutions. I started off 2022 with all these big plans, big designs of being more productive, of removing the distractions from my life, of reading more books. But all, the, all, all of a sudden, we're at the end of January, and the best laid plans of mice and men have indeed gone awry. How about for you? Whether we're talking about New Year's resolutions or the early life of the Christian church, seems like Murphy's Law is in effect. And that's what the book of Acts is about, in a sense. The book of Acts picks up the action right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus has completed his work of salvation. He has won forgiveness for us on the cross, and he ascends into heaven. But before he does, he looks at his 12 disciples, at the apostles, they're also called, and he says to them, tell everyone about what you have seen and heard about this message of forgiveness. Spread it to the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. And the book of Acts is the story of the early Christian church, the disciples, the apostles, doing exactly that, following the orders of their superior officer, but not without problems. It seems like the best laid plans, even the best of goals, the best of missions, the best objectives, still go awry don't they? That's what happened in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John encounter opposition for the first time, really, as the Christian church. And it all started when they helped someone. <gasps> How could you? They see a crippled beggar asking for money because he can't do anything. He can't work for himself. This was his only way of providing for himself. He's asking for money at a temple gate, at, at the city gate, and he sees Peter and John, and he does what he always does. He solicits them for some cash. Peter and John say, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And just like that, this crippled beggar is no longer crippled. He can walk, so he no longer has to beg. He can work. His life is completely changed, 100% positive, right? But that's not even the greatest thing that happened that day. Because the beggar's attention was fully on Peter and John, and then everyone who saw that happen also were looking at Peter and John, and they seized their moment. They preach a beautiful message of sin and grace, of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone. They healed him in the name of Jesus, and they tell him who exactly this Jesus character is. And they get in trouble for it. Because the local governing authorities are also the local religious authorities. Very different from how our politics, our government is set up. If somebody stands up and preaches something doctrinally, 
that the local authorities disagree with, they try them as a criminal. And so they hear Peter and John sharing this message of resurrection from the dead and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name alone, and they won't have it. So they bring Peter and John to court, and what was their crime? They had helped someone, and they had helped plenty of people by sharing Jesus with them, but they try them as if they were a murderer or if they were thieves or something. If this is the opposition that the church faces on day one, as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven, already things are going awry, how can we expect anything to get done with all the opposition that we face? Maybe you identify with Peter and John. Maybe you have all the plans in the world of being a a good Christian, of being a contributing member of of the church, of sharing Jesus with the people in your life, but don't you encounter opposition? Maybe you empathize with them because you can think of some groups, whether they're in power and authority or not, who seem hell-bent on getting you to stop believing whatever it is that you believe for some reason. Maybe you can think of aspects of our culture that make it very unpopular to be Christian right now, that make you seem old-fashioned and traditional or, or just plain weird. But maybe we need to remember the differences between our society, between our culture, between even our government and that of Peter and John at this time. Last week, a group of seminarians came here and they helped us go door to door, witnessing to people, inviting people to our church and asking people for their opinions about society and everything. And sure, we encountered some opposition. Some people just didn't want to talk to us, but that was about the worst that it got. They just said, no, thank you, and we had to move on. At no point did we have to worry about the police showing up and arresting us for preaching the name of Jesus. We are not encountering that level of opposition, but we still have opposition to our mission, don't we? But it doesn't quite look so much like a government, a heavy hand of the government trying to smush out Christianity, as it does a crowded schedule, a full calendar with no room to think about God, to consult him in his word, or even to come to church. It doesn't, the opposition we face doesn't necessarily look like people attacking us or coming after us, but more like a screen with apps that are designed to keep my attention for as long as possible, to keep me scrolling, to keep me shallow, to keep me from thinking about my neighbor who needs my help and my witness and to hear about Jesus. Now, as Scripture says, brothers and sisters, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We are fighting a spiritual battle, and we are encountering spiritual opposition. And here's the problem, though. Who's the guy who's who's signing my name at the, on the dotted line, overcommitting myself, overbooking myself. It's no one other than me, isn't it? Whose fingers are grabbing my phone, opening up those apps to keep me in comatose mental state for the next two and a half hours? It's not anyone else but me. The greatest opposition that we face, brothers and sisters, is our own sinful nature that hears any command of God, whether it's to witness or change our lives in any way, and says, I'm not going to do it, and runs in the opposite direction. 
that is the greatest source of opposition that our church faces. The best laid plans of even Christians like you and me seem to go awry. Murphy's Law. So it's a miracle that anything gets done, right? But, fortunately for us, fortunately for the entire Christian church across the world, God is not a mouse. God is not a person. He doesn't make plans like a person. Because when I make a New Year's resolution, I have no idea how stressful life is going to get to get in the way of that resolution. I have no idea how boring that book is going to be when I finally open it and I say, I don't want to finish this. I can't plan for the future and the unknown, but God can because there are no unknowns with God. He knows everything. There is no Murphy's Law with God. God does not need a contingency plan because he can plan it right the first time and do exactly what he sets out to do. And what did God set out to do for you? He loved you before you were even born, centuries before you existed. He knew you. He knew your name. And he promised to send a Savior for you from the beginning. Back in Genesis, when the earth was just days old, he promised to send a Savior for us. And he was going to keep that promise throughout the history of the world, throughout the Old Testament. People failed in their trust of God, but God never failed. His plan never veered off course. And then finally, he's born. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior. And every second of his life, he's living so differently than the rest of us. He lives perfectly in lockstep formation with his Father's will, doing everything well, Jesus, uh, Scripture says. But then, it's not long that hatred builds. The Pharisees begin to hate him. Other people begin to hate Jesus. And in our gospel lesson for today, we hear of one time when people attacked him, when they wanted to snuff Jesus out, but it wasn't his time yet. But time after time, they're throwing wrenches into the plan of God, and then finally, it happens. The Pharisees consort with Herod to execute a mock trial with no accusation, no charge against Christ, but they determine he's guilty. And they bring him before Pontius Pilate, who alone has the authority to give the execution order to bring Jesus to the cross. And Pilate, being a weasel that he is, he doesn't use his authority to stop this madness, this foolishness, but he says, fine, if you want to crucify him, go ahead and crucify him. And then there he is, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, hanging on a cross. And to all who are looking at him at that time, this seemed to be when the plan of God went off the rails. They killed the Son of God, the promised Messiah. But don't make God laugh. This was not his plan failing. This was all according to plan. Because you can't mess up God's plan. You can't stop God from being God. When God promises he's going to send a Savior and that he's going to forgive you of all your sins, that's exactly what happened. Nothing was going to stop God and his anointed one from winning salvation for you and promising you heaven. Herod couldn't stop him. 
Pilate couldn't stop him, the Pharisees couldn't stop him, and no one can. Because God is so wise and so powerful that he can see the wicked decisions that wicked people are going to make. And he can factor it into his plan and make it work out for our good. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the cross of Christ. But you're recognizing with me, brothers and sisters, that we need to be careful. God does not cause wicked people to be wicked. God is perfect and holy, and in him there is no darkness at all. He does not cause anyone to sin. If Herod, if Pilate, if the Pharisees, if you and me, if we have committed any sin, it's our fault. It is product of our wicked hearts, not God. God didn't cause any of it. But because God can see the whole future, he can make even the opposition work out for our good. So Peter and John, they get relief. They can't be tried as criminals. They can't be convicted or punished because to do so would start a riot because so many people like them. And then they come back with their believers and then with their fellow believers and they join in this beautiful prayer of unity. And they remember an Old Testament verse together, Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Who are they conspiring against? God and against his anointed one. Brothers and sisters, this is an example of what we call a rhetorical question. Why do the nations conspire against God? doesn't need an answer because there is no good answer. To try to work against God and his plan is the definition of stupidity because no one can stop God. Not any form of opposition can get in the way of God's plan. God is unstoppable. Therefore, so are you. Because as Peter and John joined the rest of the believers, the rest of the church, they pray this prayer. And this prayer from this day forward can be yours and mine every day. They say to God, look at the opposition that we're facing. Look at the threats. But they're not despairing. They're not saying, oh, woe is us. Everything is ruined. We're not going to be able to move on as the church. They say, God, consider their threats. God, See what's happening. God, you take care of it because we know that you can. But God, take care of us. Help us do our job with boldness, they pray. That's what you and I can pray every day. You know that there's opposition within and without. You know that there is this little opposer in your heart called your sinful nature. But remember that Christ has forgiven it. Christ has taken that sinful nature and crucified it on the cross. That's not you anymore. But you also see what's happening out there, the, the, the aspects of our culture that make it hard to be a Christian, hard to live your faith. God, see that. God, take care of it. But God, help me do my job with boldness. And you know that boldness is needed. When you're sitting at a table with a group of people and they all have made it super clear that they think that your beliefs are foolish and idiotic, but it becomes time where you speak up a little bit more about your beliefs, that takes boldness, not going to lie. 
when you're sitting with a friend who's going through a really tough time, and it's a long-time friend, you've had a relationship for a long time, but you've never really talked about religion with them, but you can sense that they just need to hear about Jesus right now. That takes a lot of boldness, though, doesn't it? And when you're going door to door and you're knocking on some stranger's door and you don't know who or what is going to answer, but you're going to invite them to an event at church or something, that takes boldness as you wait for the person to get to the door. And maybe you read a text like Acts chapter 4 and you see what happens. As soon as these believers are done praying, the Holy Spirit rocks the place that they're in and everybody speaks with this amazing prophecy And maybe you see that and you say, man, that would be nice, especially in those moments when I need a lot of boldness, when I need encouragement. It would be nice to have a sign, a clear sign that I could point to, to give me strength, to give me confidence. Well, guess what? You've got it already. What was your baptism? It was a sign that God gave to you to show you that for the rest of your life, he is always with you. To give you boldness to live for him, yes. To give you forgiveness to lean on always. To give you a foundation of your relationship with him, which no opposition can take away. What is communion? If not the strengthening of your relationship with God so that you can keep leaning on him, keep knowing his mercy, keep knowing his grace, and know that he will be with you in those moments when you speak up for him and that he is smiling from heaven when you do, you are doing a good job my son, my daughter in the faith. What is the word, if not the the means by which we learn what we are supposed to know about God and we're strengthened in our trust in him so that you know sharing Jesus is the right thing to do no matter what happens. And if you do get that opposition, the door slammed in your face or somebody starts laughing at you or yelling at you or posting about you online, you know that it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Because look at what happened to Peter and John when they just helped people. They were tried as criminals. We can expect a certain amount of opposition. But what makes it all worth it is reaching that one, that two, that three, that 50, that never heard about Christ, but come to fall in love with the message because you told them. Brothers and sisters, God is unstoppable. Whatever makes you afraid to share Jesus, whatever makes you afraid for the church, don't worry too much. No opposition in the past has been able to stop God and no opposition in the future will be. We have an unstoppable God whose love is unstoppable, who is with us always, and therefore we as Christians, as his church, we're unstoppable too. Amen.